You're listening to the College of the Redwoods podcast. With me, I have Greg Allen and Mike Perkins from the Administration of Justice Department at College of the Redwoods, and they also help run the police academy. In growing up, I've seen both sides of it. When we saw the police come, they were the enemies. You know, there wasn't a strong community connection with the police where I grew up. When you see the police, it was automatically run. That's the enemy. When I became an officer, that was, you know, my goal was, was to change that vision. We're, we're not the enemy. Hello, Greg and Mike. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat today on the episode three of our CR podcast. So we're going to go over some questions about the police academy at CR and then go into some questions about the current state of law enforcement and, and where you two see the current state of law enforcement in our community and and how we might change up some of our practices in, in policing because of some recent events. So first things first, maybe the, the folks listening could hear about um, the academy a little bit and, and info on the the Academy of Justice at CR. Sure, I'll, I'll jump in real fast. Uh, so our uh, police academy at College of the Redwoods is what's called a modular format. So it's presented in three class sessions, if you will, over the span of approximately five and a half to six months. Students begin the process in what's called module three uh, as a very baseline introduction into academy life and law enforcement concept. Uh, and the program then continues to build on itself throughout the course of the three the three modules. When the uh, cadets graduate at the end of the, the three modules, they're certified then uh, by the Commission uh, on Peace Officer Standards and Training in California to if, if hired by an agency, go out and begin a field training program, which is really what the, the academy is designed to do, is prepare students to go into a field training program in a law enforcement department. I'm, I'm the director of the academy. Actually, my official title is Director of Administration and Justice. I oversee the academy as well as the uh, four credit courses for the Administration of Justice Department, predominantly just making sure that we're in compliance with the state of California uh, and post guidelines for how basic academies operate. And I am the uh, interim coordinator for the basic academy. And basically, I oversee the day-to-day operations of the academy. And do quite a few of the cadets graduate and stay locally? Or are there a, a big portion of them who go to departments outside of the county? Uh, most have been locally, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, something I also wanted to mention is the advisory board. And maybe we could, one of you could go into maybe talking about how the advisory board came to be and, and what the advisory board is. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you that all academies in the state of California uh, work with an advisory committee uh, of one shape or form or another to help uh, guide those individual academies on on particularly local issues. Generally speaking, those advisors, those advisory committees are made up of local uh, law enforcement executives, typically chiefs of police, uh, sheriffs, uh, and they provide some guidance as to what uh, regional needs might be. Some, some of this is, predates my arrival at College of the Redwoods. I started with the college uh, in mid-December uh, but prior to my arrival, my predecessor, uh, as well as Dr. Flamer, worked together to uh, put together an, what we've been calling an aug- augmented advisory committee. Uh, and the decision was to bring some civilian folks onto the uh, committee as well to help give a civilian perspective to what the community might see as uh, important issues for the academy to address. Uh, it's worked rather well. Um, Early meetings generated a lot of uh, conversation and some some ideas that were put forth. Uh, those ideas over the course of about a year were refined into uh, about a dozen or so specific issues that they that the committee wanted to see the 
uh, Academy uh, either in, <clears throat> excuse me, enhance or introduce into our, into our curriculum. So far, we've been able to uh, accomplish most of that. Uh, some of it we'd already been doing um, in one way, shape or form. Uh, but some of the uh, some of the other issues that were brought up, uh, we've been able to build on our program and expand out some of the time that we address to those types of uh, topics for the for the students. The boards really focus on what's going on in the community and how to best um, advise for that particular community. Would you say? Yeah, that's generally you know I, I think it goes right back to the idea that the, the best type of law enforcement is law enforcement that's geared towards the community specific. Uh, and while we do have students that come to our academy from all over the state of California, the majority of our effort is is focused towards law enforcement needs for uh, the region. So Humboldt County, uh, Trinity mm -hmm. County, Del Norte. And uh, so so the ideas that were put forth through this advisory committee uh, are really more focused towards what what the feelings of, of the needs for the local community, what how law enforcement, at least at the, the basic academy level, can start addressing those. Mm -hmm. uh, understanding that the basic academy is is really just laying a foundation. Um, there's a lot more training that happens after a, a student graduates from from this program. Like I said, they go into what's typically a 16 to 18 week field training program, and then a continual uh, education process throughout a, an officer's career. Uh, there are training mandates that that follow officers for the duration of their uh, their profession. And um, Greg, maybe you could hit this question: um, What kind of recommendations has has the advisory board made that could be um, just a couple examples? Um, some of the examples were more um, critical incident thinking. Um, and we've we've already done that. Um, we just tweaked it a little bit to add a couple more hours into it. Uh, again, like Mike said, POST uh, recommends a certain amount of minimum hours in some of those topics. Um, here at CR, we either equal that or exceed those, those hours. Um, some of the other things were um, more with defensive tactics um, instead of uh, the use of force. Um, we wanted to figure out some other options as far as um, like grappling, the simple fact of, of grappling instead of using some of the other tools on our belts that, that we use, um, more team grappling where you have two officers um, maybe take someone down instead of using a baton or something other than that. So it was a lot of uh, different recommendations. Um, some of them we're still working to get into the program, um, but some of them we're, we're already accomplishing. And, and how often does the advisory board meet and will it meet more going into the future? Yeah, uh, generally speaking, the advisory board meets quarterly. We'll be meeting again, I believe it's next month. Uh, there's no expectation that we're going to deviate from what we've been doing as far as uh, uh, keeping this augment advisory board committee together. Um, we're working on the next, next round of recommendations and to see uh, where, where we go from here. Uh, I know some ideas have been brought up about enhancing students' understanding and knowledge of the LGBTQ community and how we can integrate some of that uh, education into our program to make sure that we're, we're doing the best possible job in interacting with that, mm -hmm. uh, that aspect of our community as well. We actually did just have a uh, one, one of the things that was developed and through the advisory committee was a program brought into the academy called uh, augmented, or I'm sorry, a uh, community conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, we just last week had a panel discussion with a few members of the advisory committee, as well as uh, one in-service officer, uh, along with all of the uh, recruits. It was done in a Zoom format. Mm. And uh, the students were able to put together some questions that they wanted to ask this panel. 
and it, it generated a lot of really good conversation between the, uh, the panel members and the students and, and uh, looking at ways that, that students can better understand how to interact with the various aspects of our community. You know, and with recent events, you know, the topic of de-escalation has has came up in, in the news and media and, and without, you know, with all that stuff. But I think it's important to know what is de-escalation and when did de-escalation de-escalation start and has de-escalation, you know, changed um, recently. And um, maybe if either one of you two want to talk about just de-escalation and kind of the history leading to today. Sure. I, I, I'll jump in real fast and then I'll turn it to Greg. The, from, from my perspective, I've been doing law enforcement. I was spent 28 years with the Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Office. I did my entire law enforcement career with them. I've been involved in law enforcement training and use of force training uh, since the mid 90s, uh, both at the Sheriff's Office regionally. Uh, I've had an opportunity to actually teach internationally. And I will tell you that the idea behind de-escalation is basically the same fundamental concept that we've been teaching for decades. Uh, it's about tempo control and trying to, to stabilize an event. It's always been a contention on, on our part that, that the best way to do that is to, again, to, to slow the event down and as best as possible, keep your distance from a problem. We can relabel that a lot of different things and the most recent relabeling has been de-escalation, but it's the same basic concept is, is trying to, when officers arrive at a chaotic or, or, or an unknown event, uh, trying, to, trying to, before we can investigate what the problem is, there's a simple need of, of scene stabilization and the best, and and then trying to decide what the best way to manage that is. Again, uh, I always talk to recruits and say, "What's the what's the safest way to handle a, a call for service?" And there's lots of people throw things back at you, and and the answer really is over the phone. I mean, it's very hard to get hurt or hurt anybody over a telephone call, right? But you can't solve every problem over a telephone call, and unfortunately, it necessitates officers going to the scene and stabilizing sometimes a very chaotic event. We've seen some of those in very recent. Uh, past just the last week with uh, uh, some of the events that generated a lot of conversation about what officers should or should not do upon arrival at scene. And and it's creating an interesting conversation in, in society right now about how law enforcement operates. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people are shooting from the hip, so to speak, on on making determinations about what officers should do when they don't have a lot of background as to how, you know, the, the realities of it. And, and it's not as simple as saying, oh, they should shoot somebody in the leg. Well, that's a very unrealistic solution to a lot of problems. And, and it's fraught with all sorts of other issues. But as we look at the general idea of de-escalation, it's a concept that is not new to law enforcement. We have simply been trying to get officers to understand the importance of slowing the tempo down and trying to gain some level of control. But last point I'll make before I, I, I throw it to Greg real fast is that we, we operate on a fairly simple formula in law enforcement and it has to be simple because it's done in such a chaotic law enforcement occurs and in, in oftentimes very chaotic and, and and events that where we don't have a lot of information and so the formula that we tend to operate off of as far as a public safety agency and i would say that this isn't exclusive to law enforcement it applies across the board to the fire fire discipline ems all public safety the the, the by the sheer name sort of states the mission involved, right? Uh, and as we look at trying to prioritize our decision-making model, the, the first priority are safety of people who are in immediate peril. We then extend that out to people who might also then become additionally in peril. 
We also then look at the safety of public safety personnel, officers, firefighters, EMS technicians. And then ultimately, and, and, and while it's, it's important that we are doing our best for everybody, in, as, we, as we go down the list of, of priorities, then we get to the people who are the actors in the event, the people that are generating the problem. In law enforcement, we, we define those as suspects, right? If, if, if they are in the mix of this event, we are concerned of their, their safety, but their safety comes secondary to the safety of, of innocent people. Thank you for that. Greg, do you want to add? Yeah, I would agree with everything that Mike said. You know, I started my 27th year in law enforcement this year, and from day one, de-escalation has always been taught. One thing we have to realize in law enforcement is that most times we're meeting people on their worst day. And so we, we're not meeting people on their birthdays or celebrations and stuff like that. There's a reason why we're called, and a lot of times that's to keep the peace. Our simple arrival sometimes escalates the situation. When you're talking about persons with mental health, those that have had prior problems with law enforcement. So what we're trying to teach here at, at CR is be knowledgeable of just because you have a uniform on, that situation can be chaotic just for the fact that they see you in uniform. You have to use the skills that we're teaching you out here to basically control that scene with the minimal amount of force that's, that's able to be used. And again, officer safety is, is peril uh, as well as the community safety. And so that's what we're looking at as when we, when we show up onto the scene. Is, is safety of everybody involved. Mm-hmm. It's majorly important. And something about de-escalation training, it's its almost like you have to recreate a stressful situation. Um, I mean, and within the academy or other trainings that you two have done throughout your careers, what are some high stressful environments that you can really simulate that's somewhat like, you know, being out there on the field? And and also I was a, a volunteer firefighter with Arcata Fire for, for three years and, some of the trainings that I'm like closing my eyes and thinking of that I went through to simulate high stress was confined space awareness, um, you know, putting us on all of our turnouts, putting us in little, you know, holes, um, you know, mock uh, trap doors, you know, getting entangled with wires and then, you know, only so much oxygen you have to like get out of that scenario. And, and looking back at some of those trainings, I was extremely stressed out and, you know, some, you know, grown men in tears from being you know, entangled with wires. And in some of these situations, you can simulate a high stressful situation. And, and you know, that's like firefighting training, you know, being, being um, you know, simulating being trapped in a burning building. But, but how do you simulate, you know, maybe someone who is, you know, trying to use force on you or someone who has a weapon? Like, what are some of the things that you, you teach in the trainings? Well, I would like to say that our, our, I, I agree with you 100%. I think, I think recreating stressful environments is an, an important factor in, in the training. We actually do it in a variety of ways, and, and there's a term that we utilize for that. It's called stress inoculation. It can be from the, the simplest of concept, where just just being doing a, a morning inspection, where a, a recruit training officer is inspecting your uniform and asking uh, knowledge-based questions uh, based on uh, previous learning domains that have been covered, with with, with a potential of of some type of a a, a repercussion if you if there's a a flaw in the uniform or a, a, a failure of knowledge uh, that might result in push-ups or it might result in in a written assignment. So, so that's a, a very low level beginning to to creating stress inoculation. That gets built on over the course of the academy through a variety of different techniques. Uh, one of them is uh, is a required component of the academy program, which is scenario-based testing. That is a great way to put people into a stressful environment is to create a 
a three-dimensional test that they're required to perform in real time using the best situational knowledge that they can muster at the moment, right? Some of those scenarios can involve uh, the, the threat of physical assault. So we use different training aids to help uh, facilitate that. We are uh, training equipment called red man suits, which are a large padded suit that we can put a role player in and, and physically be assaultive at the student, mindful of control so that the student doesn't get hurt in the process, but that the student can then use a, a reasonable facsimile of, of a level of force, so whether it's a baton strike or, or, a, or a control hold uh, without hurting the role player in, in part, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we have other techniques. There's a what's called a force, force option simulator, which is a screen-based, uh, uh, a computer-based uh, program where officers are equipped with simulated weapons that fire a, a laser at a, at a two-dimensional screen. Uh, the officers will then go get given a scenario where they then start encountering people that are part of this video simulation and have to treat it like the real world, right? Uh, and that requires real-time good decision-making as well. Um, there's actually new technology that we've just uh, taken on as part of the academy that was supplied by, by POST, which is a virtual reality system, very similar to the, the one I just described. It's a, a simulated environment where the officers have a little bit more of a three-dimensional mindset, if you will, because it's a VR, uh, but they have to encounter people, recognize potential threats, and try to stabilize events uh, with, with the tools they have on their belt, right? Wow, virtual reality, that sounds really like it could be useful in this situation. Every every tool helps. And uh, I would say the virtual reality is an is a interesting thing to add into the mix. I I also am a huge proponent of role-player-based scenarios where, where you, you get to the benefit in dealing with a three-dimensional person, a real human being, uh, it really emphasizes the need for communication. And I think that that is one of the huge portions of, of where our academy program is going is increasing our ability to communicate in stressful three-dimensional environments. That's that's what's going to prep these students to be able to go and be very effective in a field training program. And, and that's that's the direction that uh, our program is headed. Now, I think Mike hit it right on the head. You know, um, even the simple thing of, of knowing the tools on your tool belt, you know, knowing which option that you can use with your eyes closed, you know, with repetition, um, that that's training, you know, and that's something you need to know, you know, in an instant, what what tool you're pulling out of your belt that's, you know, appropriate for that situa- situation at hand. Mm-hmm. Um, that way you're not making mistakes like we've seen, you know, uh, recently. What What is some of the, can you walk us through some of the, some of the trainings and, you know, police discretion for traffic stops that, that you teach at the academy? Discretion as in, you know, when to cite, when not to cite, when to give a warning, when not to, you know, when to either give a warning or not give a warning. You know, how, how do you kind of teach those discretions in the academy? When, you, when you're talking about discretion of whether to cite or, you know, give somebody a, a warning, um, that comes down to an individual agency's uh, policies and procedures. You know, some agencies, you know, go by quota. They want a certain amount of citations written. Mm-hmm. Others, you know, could go with just warnings. Um, and education. So it, it depends on the actual infraction that, that we're talking about, whether you're pulling somebody over for speeding or you're pulling somebody over for a you know faulty taillight. All those are, are, are violations of the, the vehicle code. However, you know, the state gives us that discretion on whether to, to cite somebody or to give a warning. Mm-hmm. I, I'll chime in here too. It just, a, a lot of times that, that officer discretion is really, a, a, it's a fluid thing. Mm-hmm. And, and I will tell you from my career, 
I, I never made a decision before when I decided to pull a car over, I never made a decision as to whether or not this was going to result in a citation until I had a chance to actually talk to the, the person I was contacting. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times that really told me whether or not a, a, a simple warning was going to be effective. Some people, a, a warning is all it takes. And it's, and that's something that's developed. I think not, you, you can't really teach that in an academy that's learned through trial and error and experience and, and, and just, you know, time, time doing the job, you start to get a very good feel for reading people. And, and some people are going to be very receptive to a simple, Hey, I I need you to think a little bit more careful about coming to a complete stop. We've had issues at this particular intersection, whatever the case may be, and, and, and and trying to get people's acknowledgement of, of the problem of not complying with the law in that case. Other people are less apt to uh, listen to reason that way. And, and again, it's through uh, training and experience that you start getting a really good sense for this person is, I could, I could be as eloquent as possible and they're just not gonna hear what I have to say. So mm-hmm. simply hear, rather than try to explain it on the side of the road, which is not any place for a debate, the decision mm-hmm. is I'm gonna give you this traffic citation. And then if we decide, if you wanna fight it in court, we can then go in front of a magistrate and have that conversation in the right venue. But, but debating the lawfulness of any of that mm-hmm. in, a, in a chaotic environment out on the street is just, that's not the way it's designed to go. Mm-hmm. So back to the idea of discretion, it really boils down to, I think, an individual officer. Some officers are gonna be more inclined to write citations than others. Some officers are gonna be more inclined to give warnings and it really, it's a it's a very sliding scale. There's not there's nothing that says it will always have to be this way. At least in a in a traffic type environment that we're just talking about. Yeah, yeah, totally. Some people don't believe that police should carry guns, um, and in some countries they actually they don't. Um, but why do you say why do you think that you know we need guns in our country or in our police force? Again, I, I would like those that 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 say that to come do, come do the job, um, come into some of the, you know, situations that we're in and not have a gun. Um, the, the active shooter, the sheer design of an active shooter is to kill the most people at the quickest time. And so imagine responding to that without a, a weapon. You know, it's, it's hard for me to fathom that because so many people are illegally carrying guns and committing crimes. And then we respond to that without something that would protect you or myself, it's hard for me to imagine. In a perfect world, in a perfect world, the police don't need guns, right? I mean, but that's, but that's not the society we're in. And, and however somebody wants to take the Second Amendment, we are a culture that is a gun culture. Um, it makes a lot of people uncomfortable. I totally understand that. Uh, this is certainly not, I, I don't want to debate the, the strengths and weaknesses of the Second Amendment, but that is the law of the land. For law enforcement officers to be able to function in our society, where our society is now, uh, yeah, I'm sure we all could equally agree. We wish it was not as violent a place as it is. But unfortunately, we are in a violent culture. And in order for peace officers to go out there and do that function, keep the peace, the necessity is has become the case where, where they have to be able to respond to the potential for lethal force and without some type of a comparable tool, uh, I don't think you'd find anybody that would be willing to go into some of the environments that Greg just described, the, these 
events of rapid mass murder uh, with nothing but good intentions. I, yeah, it's, it's horrible and it's tragic. But, but again, it goes back to that simple formula. In the end, prioritization of life says that innocent people are our priority. That is, that is the mandate of law enforcement to protect these people. And if, and if it needs to result in using lethal force on somebody that is using lethal force or has that capability on, on innocent people, then mm-hmm. as tragic as it is, that's, that's the necessity of the job and it necessitates the tool to be able to do it. it mm-hmm. It's an interesting, you know, we could segue into the idea of uh, a lot of the, the calls for service that law enforcement are being tasked with things. First, first line officers, patrol officers tend to be jacks of all trades, right? They're asked to go out there and handle everything from <laughs> cat in a tree to, to somebody in, in complete mental crisis. And while there are some very skilled officers in dealing with people in crisis, that's not their first job skill necessarily. Uh, and well, it'd be great to have the people that are very apt at doing that at every call, sometimes that's not the case. There are people that are trained to deal with people in crisis. Unfortunately, they don't have law enforcement training. And to date, I haven't seen any of those people willing to go without the benefit of somebody to protect them at one of these calls. So, so as much as it'd be not great to send a, a, a mental health professional to every person in crisis call uh, to help solve that issue, there, the needs still exist to have an officer there to stabilize the event so that that person can then do their job. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure I see a, another solution yet. I wish I did. I'd probably <laughs> solve the world's woes if we could figure that out. Well, you know, I think part of the reason why there's no officers with guns in some of these countries is because guns aren't uh, on the streets as much as they are in America. It's much easier to access, you know, guns in the United States than it is in, in other countries. And and do you see that playing a big role in the reasons why we have guns is because maybe it's so easy to get guns here? I, I absolutely think that that's the case, but I think that mm-hmm. genie is out of the bottle and I'm not sure there's going to be ever getting that one back in. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, yeah, which is not to say that there aren't places where guns are hard to come by, where there aren't acts of violence. I mean, take the gun out of it for a second. I have been at calls where people have been armed with edged weapons. I have zero interest of getting within arm's reach of somebody with, with a fillet knife that, that wants to use it against me. It, it does not feel to get feel good to get stabbed. And, and, and so to expect officers to be able to solve that problem without a tool that can solve it from a distance is unfortunately, again, I think a lot of people are getting their training from Hollywood and they're, they're seeing things that are just completely unrealistic. The idea of shooting a knife out of somebody's hand that's that's absolute Hollywood. The idea of shooting somebody in the leg to to immobilize them, that's all well and fine. But I mean, a leg is full of some pretty significant arteries. They're full of hard bones that a bullet strikes and the bullet changes trajectory. There's no guarantee that shooting somebody in the leg does not turn into a lethal event. It, it, again, it's people are using their their Hollywood training to to try and set the course for for how law enforcement functions, and that's a very dangerous road to go down. Greg, I have a question for you. I'm going to unmute you there. Um, so you are a person of color and you are a police officer. Um, I'm curious if you have had any pushback from your community for wanting to be a police officer. Um, 
not really from those that I grew up with and uh, those that I went to school with, none at all. Um, mm -hmm. Because I'm the same person when I put the uniform on and when I take it off, um, there's, there's no change. For those that don't know me, sometimes I do get some pushback. You know, you get the name calling, why are you doing this job, selling out? And I, I can understand it, you know, in growing up, I've seen both sides of it. You know, I was the person that when we saw the police come, they were the enemies. You know, it wasn't a strong community connection with the police where I grew up. When you see the police, it was automatically run. That's the enemy. When I became an officer, that was, you know, my goal was, was to change that vision. We're, we're not the enemy. You know, we are trying to be in the community. Uh, one of the things I do is I coach. I, you know, I'm assistant coach. And so that's my way of giving back to the community just to show that, you know, I am human. But I do go to work as a police officer. Um, not not generally do I get much pushback, but it has happened um, early on. Not so much. Mm -hmm. And what and what are some ways that you maybe use in trainings to talk about those pushbacks? Right. So I in in the academy I, I talk about my experiences. Um, like I said, I grew up in the inner city um, where I saw you know law enforcement basically beat the crap out of people. You know myself. You know I've been searched illegally that now that I know, you know what you can and can't do. You know, I can remember my prom day. I I'm in a tuxedo and I got stopped in front of my house and they said, I matched the description of the person that robbed the store down the street. Well, I'm in a tuxedo. I, did the person have a tuxedo on? No. And they ripped my car up, searched and then told me have a nice day. So I know those experiences that people have and why they are uh, afraid of the police when the police are not a strong stronghold in your community. And so I relay those stories to those uh, in the academy and show and tell them that's why you have to be strong in your community. That's why you have to do other things besides just being a cop, because right now we don't have the trust of the whole community based on incidents that, you know, recently happened. Mm -hmm. and so by you going and doing things like coaching, uh, teaching, uh, doing certain things in the, in the community so they can see that you are human and not just that badge, that kind of helps the uh, relationships build in the community. That's awesome. Well, I have no doubt that you are spreading that legacy and sure everybody appreciates that. Um, so moving on to the next topic, I uh, kind of want to discuss some of the recent events that are not so easy to talk about, but the, you know, Breonna Taylor, the Dante White, uh, the Makia Bryant, you know, all cases of police officers using, um, you know, their firearms, their force, um, and ending in, in death. And what are some of the misconceptions about those cases or? Well, we, we talked a little bit about it so far. I think if we, if we look at, for example, uh, the Dante White event where the officer pulled a firearm erroneously thinking that, that she was going to be pulling a, a, a intermediate force option a taser. Um, those mistakes are, are absolutely tragic. They're, they're, they're tragic for everybody involved. There's no doubt. The, it's my contention that those types of mistakes happen when officers are under high levels of stress. It goes right back to the idea that starting from day one at an academy setting, our goal is, is stress inoculation and trying to get officers used to the idea of having to think and problem solve under high stress moments. There's no guarantee that that is, is going to keep these types of mistakes from happening. But I, I think it's a safe prediction that the less, the less exposure to stress in a training environment that you, that you uh, give someone the, the higher expectation that during a real moment of stress, they're going to make mistakes. I, I would like to think that Officers, like everyone in society, the way our system is supposed to function, uh, are afforded the, the benefit of due process. That before we automatically assume what transpired, 
we, we slow the tempo of the process down and look at all the evidence. There are definitely things that have happened throughout the history of law enforcement where officers have made bad decisions, sometimes uh, accidentally, sometimes uh, unfortunately intentionally. I, I would never stand here and tell you that law enforcement is immune from having bad apples, as they say. But I think you have bad actors in every profession, law enforcement, bakers, everybody. I mean, you're going you're gonna to find people that aren't your best people in any profession. It just is more troubling when it occurs in a, in a profession that is tasked with, with basically guardianship of, of our society. We, we are a very, we're, we have created a culture where we want our information instantaneously. It's not enough to wait for the five o'clock news or the, or the newspaper to come out in the next morning. Now it's instant. Everybody's a journalist because everybody has a camera and a recording device on them constantly. And that information gets posted uh, in one way, shape or form or tweeted on or whatever mod modality of pushing information out that people want to use. And unfortunately, 99% of that is, is less information and more opinion. And that's troubling as a society that we are so quick to put our opinions out there, especially if uh, we have huge followings, but not a lot of, of training. And, and so we make these broad sweeping statements that instantly become gospel. And that's very disturbing. I, I, think, I think we look at the events that unfolded with uh, uh, the Makia Bryant event. I, I'm not sure what, I, I guess I would put it back to everyone else. What, what, what should the officer do? I mean, and, and I've heard a lot of the, well, they sh he should have shot the knife out of her hand. Okay, well, let's set up some scenarios and, and you show me how easy that is. That's, that, that is absolutely outside of the realm of, of, of logic and possible. Shoot her in the leg. Well, we've talked about why that isn't necessarily a good idea trying to convince her not to stab this other person. At what point does the officer have to make a decision? Okay, I have somebody with a knife and I have somebody who's about to be stabbed and I have to make a, a split second decision on who, who do I try to save? And from my perspective, I think, I think the officer made a very clear decision with very limited information. And I think quite honestly, I'm gonna tell you, I feel he made the right decision. There's a person threatening somebody else with a knife. I think I'd probably do the exact same thing. It's sad, it's tragic. It's even more tragic that it's a young girl, but the officer did not create the situation that brought him there. He simply reacted to the events that were taking place when he arrived. And, and it seems like we wanna put a lot of onus on law enforcement officers, but we as members of our society, our community and our culture need to understand we have a certain responsibility in the way we purport ourselves and our, and our method of behavior. I don't know of anywhere where it's acceptable to come at somebody with a knife. I just don't think that that is appropriate. And, and if it results in a, a, a law enforcement officer using force to protect someone else and, and that person gets shot, it's sad and it's tragic, but it's predictable. Greg, do you have anything to add to the to that specific case? Um, I, I would agree with Mike said. I, I think that, you know, there was an active person with a knife about to attack another person. I mean, that to me is one of those situations where force is necessary. It's definitely tragic, and all these killings are, are tragic um, for everybody involved. And yeah, we wish in, in a perfect world there was something else that we could do. However, the situation sometimes dictates that, you know, deadly force is going to be used. You know, for me, growing up, the Rodney King was my George Floyd. Okay? And so it's come full circle where now we're still 
dealing with the same situation and there's been no change. And so I think that's why you have the community upset at some of the same things that are going on then are still happening today. Mm -hmm. um, we talk about all these situations in the academy every time something like this comes up. What would you do in that situation? Do you believe that that person was right? If they were wrong, tell me why they were wrong. Mm -hmm. Give me a different option that could have been done at, at, on this situation. You know, whether it's training, education, or somebody was simply wrong, we, we talk about it. And we have to be comfortable with uncomfortable conversations. And people tend to not want to talk when it gets to uncomfortable. When you're talking about racial issues, people tend to lock up and not want to talk about it. Well, we, we can't learn if we don't educate each other about why something happened. Was it based on race or was it based on a training issue? Was it based on education issue? You know, if you look at uh, the Dante Wright, is that a training issue? You know, where's, where's her intent on killing that person? Okay? But she was arrested, right, pretty quickly after that, okay? Where you look at Breonna Taylor, was there intent? You know, that that's where I always look at it. And Mike mentioned it before is, sometimes we have to slow down before we make a decision or before we comment on something. And because we all know, you know, what happened to LeBron James, you know, he made a comment and he's a person of, you know, a lot of influence. And, you know, now he, he may have to walk that comment back and people now, you know, prote protesting him saying, I'm not watching basketball anymore. You know, I, I think that's a little outlandish, but I mean, that's one person in, in the league. But, you know, you, you have to slow down and let the process take its place. Uh, I think, yeah, it's broken in some parts, but it's the process that we have. Um, if we can make it better, I'm all available for any suggestions that, that we can do to make it a better situation for everybody. Well, Mike mentioned something pretty important, and it's the, the fact that so much is now filmed and photographed. And I'm sure both of you can attest to this, that anytime, you know, there's a, a big scene, people love to have the cameras out now. Um, and, you know, from Rodney King to now, you know, today, um, there's been so much more videotaped. I mean, that person videoing the Rodney King was, I believe, in his house, you know, out of his window with a big camcorder. Who knows how big that, yeah, how big, who knows how big that recorder was. But nowadays, I mean, there's so many people, like the George Floyd incident, you know, people out with their phones. And do you think, will that and has that changed how police officers are, are acting? Um, I, I want to start with integrity. You know, it's that person's integrity to you know you should be acting the same way whether you're on camera or not. It doesn't matter if the camera is there. You should be acting according to law and what you're, you're trained to do. It should be no difference in the way you act and the way you carry yourself based on whether the camera is on or not. Because we do have, you know, cell phones always are around us. I do think it, it, it's changed a lot of uh, actions on, on officers. I, I believe that it protects the officers too from, you know, false uh, accusations, but it also is transparent for the public so they have an accurate view of of that incident that, that took place. So I think it's a benefit for both, actually. Mm -hmm. And the body cams, would you say the same? Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. When did body cams come into the picture? Uh, it depends on the agency. It depends yeah. on the budget. I mean, there are still some agencies that don't have body cameras. It, it, it is generally considered to be sort of the, the, the best practice these days, um, mm -hmm. I think. I think I will give you my perspective. When Santa, I was with Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Office, and I want to say it was probably about uh, early 2000s, 2002, 2003, uh, when body cameras first started becoming a part of our, our department. We had had uh, dash cam video for a while, uh, but then the, the body camera system came in. Um, as a trainer, one of the things I found was I had a lot of, particularly the old school uh, officers, a lot of pushback. They were they were reluctant to have that. that it, it was taken as a sense of they don't trust me, and now I have to film everything I do. 
I will tell you from my perspective, I was always a proponent and I was even more of a proponent. I became a manager. I was a station commander down in Carpinteria and I had countless events where citizens would complain about an event. Uh, I would be talking to them on the phone and watching the video of the event that they were describing to me. And I, and I would tell them, oh, I, and this was again, back in some of the earlier days of, of body cameras. Hey, I'm, I'm watching the event right now. It was recorded on the officer's body camera. Would you like to come down to my office, watch it with me? Because what you're describing and what I'm seeing don't seem to coincide. And I would like your opinion. And as soon as they found out that, that there was video of the event, mm. all of a sudden things started to track. Well, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to do that. I just want to, I would just want you to be aware of it. So, right, well, I'm I really, your concerns are important to me. And if you have, if you want to discuss this, I am more than willing to, to, to go through this. But, but in the end, they would pull back, recant their, their complaint and just say, I just wanted you to be aware of it. So my opinion is more often than not, those body cameras are saving officers uh, from erroneous complaints and allegations. Mm-hmm. I, I think they're monumentally huge. And what we tell people in training is you, you should anticipate you're being filmed, whether you're running a body camera yourself or not. The minute you leave your station to the minute you get back, if you don't think that you're on somebody's surveillance camera, somebody's iPhone, you're, you're crazy. Mm-hmm. That's, we, our entire society is captured on film these days. Um, so let's move and talk to the George Floyd trial as we get to the last little bit of our podcast. What, what were some of your thoughts in watching the trial? And in this case, what do you think particularly was different? Um, I think that because of the uh, amount of, of press and a, a amount of publicity it received, everybody was a, a, aware of this trial. Um, you had officers on the stand, which had to be the most uncomfortable for them is because, you know, they work with that person. And now they're on the stand saying that person did something wrong. You know, you don't get that <laughs> too many times in, in, in his career. However, when you look at some of the policies, there's a duty to intercede. And as a part of the, the human element that you need to be honest of what you saw and not sugarcoat it. And when you get a subpoena and you got to use Florida to tell the truth in the courts, there's nothing else you can do but tell the truth. Mm-hmm. And I, I think this is, I'm, I'm sure it happened in the past, but with so much press on this one, um, and again, to me, common sense would have played a lot in this. If you're not kneeing somebody in the neck for however long, he's probably alive. You know, I mean, I don't know where that's taught anywhere as far as a, a use of force or a control technique. Um, I can tell you it's not <laughs> taught here, but you know, it's, it was hard to watch because you kept seeing the video because at the end of the day for me is I'm going to be black when I take off the uniform. Could that happen to me? Could that happen to my kids? Could that happen to, you know, somebody in my family? And so that, again, it's one of the things when I, I take personal, when I see it, I don't make comments on it until I watch the whole thing and I, I know what I'm commenting on. Mm-hmm. And so I like to tell those experiences to those that I'm training is, hey, this is what I saw. This is why I believe that that was way out of line. Mike, do you have anything to add? I, I, I will echo what what Greg just talked about. I will, I will say this, as a, again, as a trainer, as a law, California law enforcement uh, professional, when, we, when I first saw that video, I, I was shocked, shocked and thinking, wow, that, that just does not look right. Um, one of the things I did early on, I went to the web and I looked up their use of force policy. It's an open source document. You can go in and look at it yourself. And oddly enough, in their in their department, that is 
they, they talk about kneeing on somebody's neck. I, I, wow. It's shocking to me. I would never have even considered that as an option. And yet here it is in, in their policy. Um, I, I think one of the things that was frustrating in, in, in the course of this event and the, and the trial was, again, some of the immediate knee-jerk reaction we look at, uh, the, the term that kept getting used was chokehold. Well, I, I don't know what type of hold there. I, I, I can't speak to their policy, their tactic, what he was doing. It's nothing that we have ever taught, nothing I've ever been exposed to. Again, in 28 years of California law enforcement, I have never been to a post-approved class that discussed kneeing on somebody's neck specifically. But, it, but it, what it happened was it opened up this, this conversation about chokeholds and the, the, the result was the removal of the carotid restraint from uh, the basic training format throughout the state of California. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I will tell you that, I, I, let me just start at the very the basic level. The, 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 the term chokehold is used, but, but a carotid restraint is not a chokehold. I, I, again, 28 years of law enforcement, I was never taught how to choke somebody. As a matter of fact, the, the carotid restraint, or sometimes called the lateral vascular neck restraint, is designed to actually protect the, the air, airway in the person that, that it's being rendered on. Now, I, I, right, wrong, or indifferent, the decision is made that that was no longer taught. We do not teach it in our academy. But, but that's, that's, I guess, where I'm going with that is that rather than slowing the tempo of the energy that comes out of one of these events down and, and looking at things pragmatically and realistically and getting facts decisions are made sweeping decisions that ultimately take away a tool that might actually be a a pretty reasonable tool as part of the the law enforcement use of force spectrum and 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 making it unavailable because when a when a carotid restraint when a lateral vascular neck restraint is properly applied it is relatively safe for what is happening and and unfortunately the term chokehold keeps getting pushed out there and, and, and we're calling something, one thing, by another name. And we've changed the, the training paradigm. And that's, it, it, it's frustrating because we're trying to stay ahead of problems by keeping officers with the, with the most options available that are deemed safe and, and appropriate based on totality of the circumstance. Mm-hmm. And here was, a, here was a technique that potentially fit into that rather well but but because it was mislabeled and nobody slowed the event down to discuss why uh, a carotid restraint and a chokehold are two different things the decision was made and chokehold or, or, or carotid restraints are, are removed from from the the curriculum yeah and you know very hard to watch that nine minutes i mean it was over nine minutes and he was on his neck and even yeah. if that's you know any use of force is hard to watch i mean that, that people need to understand use of force is not a pretty thing from the lowest end to the highest end, it's not pretty. It's unfortunately a necessity. I'm not trying to defend this particular event. Don't get me wrong. I, I'm just saying we, we got to be realistic about the fact that that law enforcement, as an unfortunate necessity of the job, is is required to use force from time to time to help stabilize the scene and protect public safety. Okay, so if we were going to use um, some of what we're what we've learned through that case, let's just say we're going to, you know use the George Floyd incident, incident as um, as a force to maybe do better in the future, as bringing it to training, you know, either showing the video within the police academy and saying, what would you do, like Greg, like Greg mentioned, you know, put it being a scenario-based teacher, 
you know, saying, you know, here's a video, what would you do and why? What would you do differently? Why? I mean, are you going to bring some of what we've learned through this case to the academy at CR? You say absolutely. I, I think we do that with with any event. We try anything that is that is current and and we're able to even with limited information hold up to the recruits and say here what do you think about this what what are some of the things that that you can see happening in this event understanding that in any piece of video we're only getting a snapshot of, of the mm -hmm. totality of the event and and we put it to them just to to get their brains working and thinking okay what could i do what would i do differently mm -hmm. and we look at you know, with, with the ability to sit back in an air conditioned room without the stress of the moment happening and say, look, what happened here? And why did it, why, why did this particular event track in this direction? And what could we have done differently? What should we be looking for in these types of events so that we can then do things differently to have a more, more successful outcome? Mm -hmm. Greg, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I agree hundred percent. We've already been doing it. Uh, anytime we have an incident or a tragedy like that, we are full discussion about what we see, was it correct? Any other options that we could have taken? You know, it's, we had the luxury of sitting back and watching something that happened in a matter of seconds. And so like Mike said, without the stress, we're sitting back critiquing something that somebody had, you know, seconds to make that decision. Uh, and so hopefully when we do see something like that, we'll know how to respond because we saw something similar in the training that we've had previously. Mm -hmm. So that helps us prepare. And um, lastly, before we wrap up, let's talk about um, the word reforms or, or maybe even the, the word defund the police was, you know, definitely used a lot after the George Floyd incident. And the idea that possibly divesting some of the um, money for police and investing some of that money into therapists or counselors as part of de-escalation um, of some, some cases that might not require a police officer maybe um, a counselor or a therapist. Do you see any place for that in the future? And and of course, that's a very rough and vague general, you know, uh, general statement. But but maybe in five years, five ten years, is there a place for therapists and counselors to take over some of the responsibilities that might even take off some of the um, duties from the police officers and give on to them? Do you think that's a possibility? God, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Huh. You're not going to get any argument, I think, from law enforcement to be able to take some of the workload off of the shoulders of particularly patrol personnel. And, 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 and like I said, push that onto people that are better trained to solve those problems. I, I would like to send what, whatever the problem is, I'd like to send our best pitch at it. If, if it's a person with mental health crisis, I want to send the best counselor we can. I'd love for it to be a case where that person could arrive without the need to draw down on law enforcement resources to stabilize the scene and know that everybody there was going to be safe. Unfortunately, that's the issue that we, we could take a lot of our resource money redirected to these, these folks, but they're still going to need someone to go and stabilize the event so that they can then do their work more often than not. If, and if it's a case where it doesn't need law enforcement, maybe it never comes up on our radar at all anyways. Uh, unfortunately, that's not those those aren't the issues that are bringing this conversation back to the to the forefront of everybody's, you know, topics of conversation. It's the events that require law enforcement to arrive to figure out what's going on to stabilize the scene that degrade rather rapidly. Again, officers are arriving at these, as Greg said, very quick decision points with limited information. And, and, and that's officers need to be afforded the ability to say, look, as we look, as we dissect what happened, this is the information the officer had 
at the time that the officer took the action they took, right? I, I think it'd be fantastic to, to be able to have a, a system in place where, like I said, we, we throw the best pitch at whatever problem is, is, is coming up on the radar at any given moment. And, and if that could reduce the number of armed law enforcement officers going to every one of these things, so much the better. I guarantee you, I would rather see the, those resources put towards better use. The sad fact is, I, I, like I said, I have, having worked with mental health professionals during my time with the sheriff's office, even with, with EMS, with, with medics, medics will not respond into an event that is still dynamic and still has the potential for injuring them until law enforcement has stabilized the scene. And so it puts that onus right back on the shoulders of law enforcement to, to stabilize the event. So I, I see both sides. Um, again, my degree is in social work, so I understand the need for you know resources and, and stuff like that. One of the issues I have with is when people say, you know, defunding doesn't mean we're taking money from an agency. Well, it's in the word defund. It means you're taking away money from something else. I'm in agreement with that. Yes, we do need, you know, some other type of uh, response. Um, I, I've been looking at, um, it's called Cahoots, I believe it's up in Oregon, um, where they have a, a EMT and a counselor respond to different uh, events without law enforcement. And it seems to be working up there uh, pretty successfully and is going through uh, their the dispatch is the one that is making the calls of who gets uh, a law enforcement, you know, arrival with that that group. So that is something that's possible that can happen. Again, it's going to come down to, you know, priorities and funding. Uh, mm -hmm. Like everything, money, money talks, you know, and if we have the ability to pay for those services and, you know, try something new, knowing that it also has to be safe for those persons to enter that environment, I'm, I'm all for it. And I think it's something worth looking at. Yeah. Would you say that a lot of police departments are possibly for this? If of course, if, if there is the money with. I, I do. I know Arcadia's already started something with uh, County Mental Health here. Uh, Eureka Police Department also has their CSET team. So it's already uh, starting um, locally. Um, again, the funding is what's going to push how much we can do. Part of the issue is getting people out at nighttime. Uh, a lot of social workers work eight to five Monday through Friday. What happens when you get that call at, at three in the morning? You know, who, who, who do we call to come out to, to make that situation mm -hmm. safe? And so that's some of the questions that's going to be have to be answered. It's a great point. Um, well, both of you, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. We really appreciate it. We're really trying to create, you know, meaningful and relevant dialogue um, within the, the CR campus, right? And get faculty discussing current, relevant and really hot topics, right? I mean, yes. this is a, a very current, sensitive and hot topic right now. And I think you both of you gave some very great insights from from the law enforcement side that maybe individuals learning and researching from Instagram and YouTube don't see. <laughs> Um, and, you know, I thank both of you for your service and you guys are both doing amazing things for our community and for the enforcement side of things in general. It sounds like you guys both have a, a growth mindset and um, a lot of forward thinking in, in the law enforcement field. So and we need a lot. We need those folks out there. And um, so I know the community and CR and I all appreciate your your service. So just wanted to say that. And if you want to say any uh, any last words, maybe there folks maybe wanting to apply for the academy or um, some sort of um, words to leave on, that would be great. Absolutely. I, I will, I will take that right where you left off, you know, people that want to apply for the Academy. I know a lot of people have a lot of strong opinions about how law enforcement should work. And I, I guarantee you, I, I don't know of an agency in our region that isn't hiring right now. So if there are people that are strongly passionate and committed towards seeing change, the best way to, to, to affect change is from involving oneself. And I would 
relish the idea of getting someone, uh, folks into our program, giving them the baseline training and seeing what they can uh, do to help better the profession and, and ultimately make our communities safer and more effective. Uh, and then anybody that does have questions about either our program or law enforcement operations in general, we, we, our goal is to educate, whether that's in the formal setting with our students or if it's coming by the office sometime, having a cup of coffee and having a discussion over, you know, things that they're, they're concerned about. I, we're open and willing to, to talk to folks anytime they want. So by all means, uh, consider us a resource. They can contact me directly at michael-perkins at redwoods.edu. That's my CR email. Uh, my desk extension is, <laughs> I'm still new enough here where I don't know. <laughs> I'll, I'll look it up for you real quick. 4331, I believe, is my extension. Ooh, he got it. <laughs> I'm pretty certain that's my extension. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'd have to default to Greg for the prefix on that. But uh, mm -hmm. um, by all means, email or phone call or, or, or come on by anytime. I'm happy to, happy to talk to folks. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. Greg, you want to say anything? Uh, just, uh, you know, add that, you know, here at CR, again, it's about education and training. Um, and we instill both of those, not just one. Um, you can't have one without the other to be successful. Um, and again, like Mike said, we're here as a, as a resource. Uh, like you want to come by, talk to us. Uh, you have a view on something. You'd like to speak to the academy about something. Give us a call. Uh, we can learn from each other. Uh, my email is greg-allen at redwoods.edu. Phone number 707-476-4332. Sweet. Well, you two have a great day. And I appreciate both of you. And you'll see this podcast live and sent to you shortly, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. All right. Thanks, sir. Appreciate it, Matthew. All right. Bye, everybody. Thanks to all the listeners. Have a great day, everybody.